0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. All right, as you're being seated, I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37, and then if you want to follow along in the notes, they are available through our Google Drive folder. Um, so you can access those at any point to follow along with the uh, sermon slides. And um, can add notes accordingly if you want to. Uh, but in Genesis chapter 37, as we've already said, we're going to uh, get into uh, a lengthy account of uh, the life of Joseph and um, ultimately see how the nation of Israel and the promises to Abraham Uh, continue to play themselves out specifically through this story. So in Genesis chapter 37, we're going to simply cover the first 11 verses of this chapter today. And so I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream and what he told it and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this saying in his mind. You'll remember a couple of weeks ago we left off uh, talking about just the success and the growth of the Edomites. Uh, So Jacob's brother Esau has many descendants, and they're growing and really developing into a great nation, into a great people group with different clans and kings, and and certainly grow and expand faster than the nation of Israel. Um, By the time Israel comes out of Egypt, Edom has been successful for many decades um, and has grown uh, into a very powerful people group. Uh, The story of Israel is is a lot slower, um, and it starts here with... um, The the account of Joseph and the sibling conflict, and how that's going to allow Israel to end up in Egypt, where they're going to be protected by the Egyptians as they grow and expand and become ready to step out and become their own nation um, as well. I wanted to begin by looking just kind of at an overview of Joseph's story, and then again, we're going to cover it in chunks over the next several uh, weeks and months. Um, But looking at it as a big picture, I wanted us to understand a little bit about what we're going to see over the coming months. Um, From an overview of Joseph's life standpoint, the, the major theme that we see here is God's sovereign control over daily events, ensuring the ongoing prosperity of his people. God's sovereign control over daily events ensures the ongoing prosperity of his people. And for our kids, God controls everything in life to take care of us. God's sovereign control over daily events ensures the ongoing prosperity of his people. And when we come to the end of Genesis, specifically the end of this section of Genesis, we see Joseph relating his understanding of this concept. First, in Genesis chapter 45, verse 4, So Joseph said to his brothers, "'Come near to me, please.' And they came near, and he said, "'I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt.' And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So at the end of his life, uh, or at the... The, the latter part of his life, Joseph is, is connecting the dots and seeing God and how he's orchestrated all of these daily events to get them to the point where there's a massive famine going on and all the uh, the cards have been played now and, and everything's in the favor of the Israelites. That God has behind the scenes through daily events been working in such a way to ensure that the Israelites would prosper in the midst of this famine. And then in Genesis chapter 50, Uh, He continues to echo this mindset and this perspective of God's sovereignty um, as he's relating this to his brothers once again. Um, Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So so Joseph, once again, uh, relating to his brothers, the perspective that he has on all of the mistreatment that he's experienced in his life. And so the major theme of Joseph's story is that God sovereignly controls daily events to ensure the ongoing prosperity of his people. All right, and so as we look into this story, we see some things. First of all, there's no major miracles in this story. Um, And by miracle, we mean suspension of natural law. So there's certainly God doing things and and God in his supreme power orchestrating events, but we would not label anything that occurs in this story as a specific miracle. Um, Life just continues as it always continues. Natural laws continue as they always do. Um, There's uh, specifically God using all of the events in the story to produce good for his people. Um, just some specific things where we can see God working and and using events, but not necessarily doing anything miraculous. Um, as we get into the rest of this chapter, we're going to see that Jacob sends Joseph to go check on his brothers and sends him to a specific place thinking that's where the brothers are. So Joseph sets out and is delayed in meeting up with his brothers because they're not there anymore. They've They've relocated without Jacob knowing about it. So Joseph shows up expecting to greet his brothers, and they're not there, and he has no idea where they are, and he just happens to stumble upon a man who has no name and no other history in scripture except for the fact that he's the man who overheard the brothers saying where they were going to relocate, and Joseph just happens to encounter this man in this field, and the man says, oh, I know where they are. They're over there. And so Joseph begins another trek to go meet up with his brothers in a new location. This would have taken less time had he known immediately where to go. That's significant because when he meets up with his brothers and his brothers want to kill him and there's discussion about, no, let's, let's throw him in a pit and decide later. And then there's discussion about selling him. And they only have the discussion about selling him because it's at that precise time that slave traders come by. Had he arrived earlier... The discussion may have gone in a totally different direction because the slave traders wouldn't have come by at that time and would not have created that conversation. Um, And so God ordains that there's a delay. God ordains that he meets the right guy in the right field who has the right information about where his brothers are, shows up at the right time to interact with his brothers, showing up at the right time to be sold into slavery and not killed, which is obviously important based on what he relates to his brothers, that God sent me ahead of you to Egypt To make sure that you're preserved. The fact that he gets sold into Potiphar's house, right? Like he could have been sold to anybody. God ordains that he's sold to Potiphar. And why is that significant? Well, because God's overall goal is to get him into second in command in Egypt, right? And so he gets sold to Potiphar, who has an unfaithful wife. And that's important because God allows that circumstance to cause Joseph to end up in jail. Why is that important? because he seemingly ends up in jail with other people of prominent position in Egypt who were serving prominent people, right? He's with the baker, he's with the butler. He's not with the common thief, the common criminal in prison. He seems to be with the royal prisoners, the ones that have been found to be uh, doing injustice in their position. So he gets into the right criminal company, which eventually allows him to get into the right position to interpret Uh, Pharaoh's dreams. This is all God working in this situation. Nothing miraculous that we can pinpoint and say, here's where God steps in and does something unique and individual to Joseph, but all of these events working together and being tied together, and you say, "Well, well, maybe just God just wanted to work this out as it was happening, but you can't discount the fact that back in Genesis 15, when he's talking to Abraham, decades before Joseph's even on the scene, he says, Abraham, your people are going to end up in another nation, and they're going to be in bondage to them for many years, and then they're going to come out and be a great nation. So this is all planned, and this is all thought out, and God already has this stuff ordained and is going to work in this direction far before any of this starts to happen. So this is God's sovereignly working events. And this is always shown to be in favor of God's people. Why is that important? Because we need to see the events in our life connected in the same way. That as God's children, specifically as Gentiles grafted into God's people, we we can look back, and even if we can't put all the pieces together like Joseph does, we can at least trust that those pieces do fit together in some form or fashion to produce good for us. Even if we can't look back and specifically see exactly how. We can trust because scripture is full of stories like this where God works events for the good of his people over and over and over. And Joseph is one where we get the the lengthy explanation for how this works. And then number three, the stage is set for the gestation of the Israelite nation. So the Israeli nation um, is going to be produced as a result of this story. They travel down to Egypt in kind of an embryonic state, this embryonic clan, this family family, And then 400 years later, they are coming out as a great nation that strikes fear into the hearts of other nations as they begin to march to the promised land. And this is all God working and moving and doing what he desires to do with his people. There's a lot of great things that we can talk about in regards to Joseph, and we're going to see a lot of great things about him. He's a lot like Daniel in some senses. Um, Joseph's known for his wisdom um, in the same way Daniel interprets the dreams of kings, Joseph does the same thing. Um, there's no sin compromise in kind of their big testing situation, right? Potiphar's wife comes to Joseph and wants to lay with him. Joseph says no. Daniel is tempted to um, to forego his allegiance to God and to pray to the king. He says no. They both end up in prison, Uh, Daniel's situation probably a little bit worse or at least a little bit more fearful and that he's given over to the lions, but both um, falsely accused, both have opportunities to sin and they do not compromise. They're both jailed for their obedience. Um, they They both become vice regents of the realms that they are a part of. So a lot of similarities between Joseph and Daniel. A lot of similarities between Joseph and Jesus. What are some of the things that you guys maybe came up with in your discussion groups this morning? What are some Ways that Joseph is a um, type of Christ that we can see in the story. Anything that you guys specifically discussed. Okay, the shepherd language is used for uh, Joseph's responsibilities and then what Jesus ends up um, picturing himself as over his people. What else? Other similarities between Joseph and Jesus. Okay, we have examples of both of them overcoming temptation and not giving in to the flesh. Okay, yeah, they both end up in Egypt. Both of them are hated by their brothers. As Jesus is growing up, his brothers despise him, and it's not until after the resurrection that any of them become followers of his teachings. Um, Both of them are falsely accused for things that they didn't do. Um, they're both sold into captivity, Jesus being sold on the night of his betrayal, Joseph being sold by his brothers into captivity. Uh, both of them, This I think this is interesting, both of them have people trying to prevent their exaltation. Right. We're going to see that the brothers essentially sell him away and make the comment, now let's see how your dreams are going to come out. Now let's see if your dreams can really come to fruition. How are we going to bow down to you Because we've essentially removed you as the heir of this family. Now, we're we're done with you and your dreams. So they've tried to prevent his exaltation, and they've actually pushed him towards exaltation. Same with Jesus, right? The Pharisees want to stop him and stop his teachings. They push him towards the cross essentially resulting, according to Philippians 2, in his exaltation, right? He's now the king of kings and the lord of lords, and he's shown to be that through his resurrection. So both have exaltation in their future, and both have groups trying to prevent it, and both end up working towards that exaltation. Um, Another similarity is that they both end up uh, between two criminals, right? Jesus obviously crucified between uh, the two, Joseph ends up in prison uh, next to the two um, the two criminals there, and there's discussions in both situations where the one criminal looks at Jesus and says, "Remember me when you reach glory." The flip side in joseph's situation is Joseph looks at the criminal and says, "Remember me when you 're in glory today when you 're uh, reinstituted with the pharaoh don 't forget about me right jesus doesn 't forget about the criminal. The criminal does forget about joseph, and it 's not until later that Joseph is exalted to that position. So some similarities in um, Jesus and Joseph's life. Um, Some things to point out. Not that there weren't these things. Let me get the notes back up there for us. Um, But there's no report of any complaining by Joseph, and he certainly had every opportunity, and from a fleshly point of things, every reason to complain, potentially. Um, There's no report of compromising we don't have any uh, big situation where he yields to his flesh or gives in to anything, which leads right into number five. There's no report of any major flaw in Joseph's life. Now, he's not perfect and he certainly shouldn't be elevated to that type of status, um, but there's nothing really major uh, that we see in his life that can be shown to be a flaw. So to kind of summarize the greatness of Joseph, Joseph overcomes envy, the envy of his brothers, which can obviously be hard to deal with, even if You're not the one dealing with the envy just to be the recipient of that type of behavior. He faces adversity. He resists illicit sexual advances. He plans for the future appropriately. He forgives those who wrong him while consistently recognizing the sovereignty of God throughout his life. I mean, he applies a lot of the Proverbs that we can read about. I mean, he's just an example of wisdom, an example of a man who responds to life in the way that every Christian should be responding to life. Um, He's not yielding to sin, planning for the future, making good, wise decisions, and on top of that, he's able to connect all the the dots and maintain a good, proper perspective on his life, right? Like, he doesn't fall into sin. He doesn't fall into complaining and griping, and um, I put in my notes, adversity doesn't harden him, and prosperity doesn't ruin him, right? Like, a lot of times, You have somebody who's dealing with what he's dealing with, and he'd become very hardened to God and the things of God because God doesn't seem to be doing good things to him. And then once the good things start to roll in, it'd be very easy for him to become blinded by those good things and become really engrossed in the things of Egypt. But we see at the end of his life, what's he saying? Take my bones when we leave this place, right? Like, this isn't my home. This isn't where I plan to dwell. Don't leave me back here. Despite all the good things I've experienced now that I've risen from the ashes and risen from prison to vice region of Egypt, this is not what I'm looking forward to. Take my bones with you, bury me in the promised land because there's greater things to come. So a great testimony to the fact that he connects everything in his life and sees God's sovereignty at work constantly. But there's some normalcy to Joseph that I think we need to highlight so that we don't get too engrossed in Joseph as the hero of this story. Because he, he's a normal guy. Um, in fact, there's some, some things that we can really highlight here. He's not a major figure in the New Testament. right? Despite all the great things we just talked about, he's not really mentioned as a great New Testament example. right? Abraham is. right? We hear, we hear of Abraham constantly. We hear of David. These are guys that we can point out major flaws in some of the things that they did and how they didn't do what Joseph maybe did. But Joseph's not a major figure in the New Testament. He's never directly quoted by other authors. He never experiences an appearance from God. Number four, he never receives the covenant promises directly because he's not part of the covenant line, right? Like the Messiah doesn't come through Joseph, comes through Judah. So don't fall prey to thinking we've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then throw Joseph right in there as though he should be grouped with those. He's a a great figure, he's part of God's people, and he's going to to inherit the promises, but he's not directly in line with the Messiah, as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are, that comes through Judah. In fact, we don't even have a tribe of Joseph, right? Like, Joseph split into his two sons. So for all the greatness that Joseph is, let's not forget that there's some normalcy to him, too, um, that The New Testament doesn't prioritize him in its teachings, and so we want to be careful that we don't elevate him too highly and forget that ultimately this is a story of God and his sovereignty. All right, so to kind of summarize the normalcy of Joseph, God continued to guide Joseph throughout his life by orchestrating all of his circumstances for good purposes, something he does for all believers. Okay, so there's some normalcy to Joseph. And I, and I think that's important for us to recognize going into this because we need to jump in and embrace this story as our story. That God works the events of our life for our good purposes because He's promised to do those things. Joseph's a great example of Romans 8:28 and how that works itself out. All right. He continued to guide Joseph throughout his life. Joseph gets dreams early in life, and then he's able to interpret dreams later in life. God's continually including him in his plan. So throughout his life, God is, is uh, guiding him and orchestrating his circumstances for good purposes. But again, that's not unique to Joseph. That's something that God does for all believers. All right, so that's a quick overview of some of the things that we're going to be hitting on in the coming months. For today's sermon, our summary sentence, if our contentment is affected by the success of others, we run the risk of growing bitter, jealous, and angry, which opens the door to even greater sins. For our kids, being angry at other people can lead us into greater sins. If our contentment is affected by the success of others, we run the risk of growing bitter, jealous, and angry, which opens the door to even greater sins. That's essentially what happens here in the verses that we've already read this morning. God is allowing Joseph to grow in his success, all right? Joseph's character and integrity starts to distinguish itself from the other brothers. And he's honored for that, and he's rewarded for that. And that causes the brothers to feel animosity towards him. They're not okay with Joseph being recognized for his good behavior. And then as Jacob begins to favor Joseph more than everyone else and and is honoring Joseph and giving authority to Joseph, the other brothers aren't okay with that either, and so they're becoming very discontent, and they're growing bitter towards an individual, and jealous and angry towards an individual, and that leads to them sitting around and having a conversation about killing their brother. And remember, these are the same brothers that were adamant about getting revenge when somebody laid, a hands, on, laid hands on their sister. And so this isn't a overnight, hey, let's kill our brother. This is something that was a steady progression. They gave themselves over more and more to bitterness and anger and jealousy to the point that it eventually leads to uh, an attempt at murder against Joseph. Even to the point that when they don't murder him and sell him off, there's no conviction that really ever happens that we know of until they see him years later. Right? Like, like, even if they got to the point a year later, two years later, three years later, it's probably at least 20 years before they interact with Joseph again. The same 20 years. Remember Esau? Remember how Esau was so angry? And then all of a sudden we see him again and he's like, hey, come here, little brother. Like, let's embrace and let's, I've missed you. Like, tell me all about your family. Like, there's no semblance of, of that type of attitude with the brothers, right? Like, they don't ever go looking for him. They don't ever feel bad that their their dad is just weeping and grieving over him. No real conviction. They they are so engrossed in their bitterness and anger and jealousy that they never go looking for Joseph. And they could have potentially tracked him down. They know who they sold him to. They could have have gone exploring and trying to find him had there ever been conviction about it. But we have no indication that they were ever convicted about this action. Um, So we need to be guarded and careful that, that we recognize that when we start to get discontent because of other people's success, it can open the door for these type of sins, which don't sound like a big deal, but certainly lead to greater sins if they continue to fester and are fed in our life. All right, And for our kids, they need to learn that lesson early as well. Being angry at other people can lead us into greater sins. All right, So going back to Genesis 37, 1 through 11, this passage kind of lays the foundation for the whole story. Because in this passage, we get the reasons for why the brothers hate him. So the sibling conflict is explained to us. And then in the dreams, we get a picture of the resolution. We get a picture of the future and how this whole story is going to play out. They're angry at him, but eventually they're going to bow down to him. Eventually they're going to yield to his authority. And so Genesis 37, 1 through 11 um, is an appropriate portion for us to cover today because it really does lay the foundation for the whole story that we're going to see in the coming months. In our notes, uh, first off, Joseph's evil report. Joseph's evil report, and for our kids, Joseph tells on his brothers. Starts off here in Genesis 37, giving us the account of Jacob's uh, descendants. Um, And it says that Joseph was 17 years old, and he was pasturing the flock with his brothers he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So if we go back and we see who Bilhah and Zilpah uh, bore, they had Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher. Um, so these are the boys that, um, that Joseph's interacting with. So he's shepherding with these boys. They're probably closer in age than some of the older uh, brothers. And so he's been tasked to work with these guys. And something happens that involves Joseph bringing a bad report of them to their father. Now, there's a lot of discussion as to whether this was appropriate or inappropriate for Joseph to do. Should he have come and told on them to the dad? Was what he told even truthful, or is it stuff that he had made up? Because some of the original wordage, when you look at it in the ways that it's used in other portions of Scripture, it's oftentimes tied to false reporting. Um, so I'm going to give you a couple different options that um, can be applied to this situation, and then I'll tell you what I think makes the most sense. Option number one is that Joseph told the truth about his brother's evil behavior. Um, so, so one way of looking at this is that there was evil things being done by the brothers, whether that was with the business of shepherding or uh, immoral behavior in their lifestyle, something, whatever it was that was being done by them, Joseph came and told the truth to his dad and said, hey, here's what, uh, my brothers are doing you need to know about it all right option number two is that joseph told in an exaggerated report about his brother's behavior that he told truth but made it potentially sound worse than it was and so that's how you would mesh the evil reporting being tied to him as well as the report actually being evil about the brothers is that he exaggerated the report a little bit made them look worse than they are Um, Option number three that some people will hold to is that Joseph told a lie and misrepresented his brothers, that there wasn't really anything truthful at all, that these guys were doing what they were supposed to be doing. And Joseph, being the youngest and starting to pick up on the favoritism of dad, kind of feeds that and brings a false report about his brothers. And then option number four is that Joseph told a true report, but should not have, that he's guilty of being a tattletale here that this was unnecessary information that was brought to his dad simply to get his brothers in trouble. Um, I don't think you have to press this to mean more than it really needs to. Um, I think at face reading, probably option one is, is what makes the most sense simply because what transpires after is that the favoritism is emphasized and the coat, and we're going to talk in a minute about the significance of the coat. I think Joseph probably told the truth, and I think it was probably appropriate for him to tell it. Um, simply because he's not rebuked for it, we don't have any indication from the text, and so I would hesitate in trying to find something about Joseph. Remember we said no major flaws are really emphasized in the text. I'd hesitate trying to dig around and find something and, and make something out of what is potentially nothing here. I think he brought a report about his brothers. We already know later in the story that his brothers aren't great people, right? Like They, they don't seem to really act and think biblically about a lot of things, so it's not Certainly a stretch to think that they 're doing something that would warrant a bad report, um, but Joseph certainly comes and tells his dad information that increases the hostility that his brothers feel towards him, and so that 's really the main point of this section so irregardless of, of how you see whether he should or shouldn't have told whether it was true or not true, the main point here is that the report from Joseph increases the hostility felt by his brothers towards him All right so The brothers respond to him being a snitch and basically coming and telling dad what they've been doing. Um, It says, when the brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And it's this evil report that leads to the second point um, about the coat. But before we get there, let me get to the implication here for us. The implication is that we should not allow the lack of failure in others to negatively affect how we view them. We should not allow the lack of failure in others to negatively affect how we view them. And let me explain what I mean by that, because I see this flushing itself out constantly um, with the middle school students that I serve. It is it is viewed negatively a lot of times to do the right thing and to be the good kid, The the um, the kids that are making the wrong choices try to be the loudest voice and try to pull people to their side. And it's viewed negatively a lot of times to be the kid making the right choice, doing the right thing. You get labels of being a goody-goody, uh, being a teacher's pet, um, and it's, it's viewed negatively. And, it's, and it typically comes from kids who are making the wrong decisions, rightfully being punished for their wrong decisions, but then looking at others who are making the right decision, being discontent with the whole situation, and attacking those individuals, hating those individuals, and trying to pull those other individuals down. This, this plays itself constantly at the age that I'm working with right now. And, and I think it probably uh, decreases as we get older, but you may see this in, in your workplace as well. You may see this in your workplace as well. Trying to do the right thing, trying to work hard, trying to serve your boss, and being criticized potentially by those that watch you and want to label you uh, as somebody who's just, you know, sucking up to the boss, basically. Um, We joke about this as administrators sometimes when we're doing something that kind of puts us in a positive light. Sometimes we'll joke at each other about, Um, how you're making us look bad because you're working harder than we are right now and you know our boss is highlighting you and not highlighting us there's not really a whole lot of realness to that Um, most of it's done in jest but i certainly see this and this is certainly important for us as parents that have kids and as we're raising our kids to help identify when this is happening and help guide our kids through this because this is what seemingly happens with joseph and his brothers that joseph's making the right decisions he's got integrity he, he's a man who's, who's gonna respond to the promises of God and hold faith in God and his brothers make poor choices and decisions and they're hating him for his integrity. And this is, this is something that I see constantly. Kids that make the right decisions and that being painted in a negative light and other kids not liking the fact that they're making right decisions and they're comparing themselves and their compromises to the fact that these other kids aren't making the same compromises. And so we should not allow... The lack of failure in others to negatively affect how we view them. We need to take responsibility for our sins and our choices, and not allow that to negatively affect how we view others around us that maybe aren't making the same negative uh, or or making the same failures and the same negative choices. Okay, so this leads into the second thing that causes hostility with the brothers. It's the favoritism that Jacob shows. So for our kids, Joseph's dad should not have loved Joseph more than his brothers, and that's certainly the case. This isn't perception. Right, like this isn't, they, they think this is happening. Like from the text, it's confirmed. Like this is happening. Like this is, this is legit. Joseph is really being favored by his dad. Um, and, it, and it's basically a generational sin that just continues to come up. Jacob was favored by his mom. Esau favored by his dad. And he's just allowing that same favoritism to infiltrate in the way that he handles his wives um, and then also how he handles his children says that, um, verse three, now Israel, talking about Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was son of his old age, right? Like this, again, this isn't the brother's perception like Moses is telling us as he writes this. Now, this this is the facts. Jacob loved him more than the rest. And he shows that in the way that he interacts with him. All right? A couple of reasons for this, for the favoritism um first of all his mother's Rachel that's the favored wife that's the one that he loved that's the one that he really only ever wanted to marry um his character is different from his brothers right Jacob's grieved over what the brothers did with the Shechemites and um he's grieved over being a stench and Joseph born in his old age is kind of the the redeeming son like we can fix this with Joseph he can be the boy that's kind of set apart and and I fix my My wrongs. I atone for my failures as a dad by doing it better with Joseph. Um, He's the favorite child of Isaac or Jacob because his character differs from his brothers. Uh, Jacob gives a coat to Joseph that signifies authority. Um, If you look into the original language, it's possible, um, not to destroy your Sunday school thoughts, but it's possible that his coat wasn't multicolored the way that it's translated. Um, It's probably better translated the fact that it was a coat that had long sleeves and went to the ground and covered both his wrists and his ankles. And the significance of that is that by putting this coat on and showing yourself in this coat, the understanding is I don't intend to work anytime soon. I don't have to work. I'm in a position of authority that does not mandate me to have to work. All their other clothing would have been cut off It would have been shorter so that they could tend to the sheep, do what they needed to do, uh, more comfortable clothing that would have allowed them to be free and to accomplish the task of being a shepherd. This is kind of tied to the bad report. It seems as though as Joseph comes back and kind of shows himself and distinguishes himself as a better manager of the flocks than the brothers, Jacob's response is to continue to show love and favoritism to him by giving him this special coat. All indications are is that Jacob plans for Joseph to be the inheritor of all his stuff, to basically be the next in line. Um, And so the brothers see that. The brothers know that Reuben should be the one, but we know that Reuben has violated that um, position because of what he's done with the concubine. And so they're angry. They're angry over the fact that it's Joseph who's not anywhere near being the oldest is being given preferential treatment and basically being put into a position of authority. This coat really stirs the pot because what it signifies is Joseph is going to be over you guys and is going to be handling the flocks moving forward. He is going to be the preferred son. I um, mean, this, this angers the other brothers, obviously. Um, it's also possible that Jacob has given to Joseph the only land owned by Jacob. You'll remember back in Genesis thirty three nineteen, we talked about Jacob purchasing land from the Shechemites, Um, One of the few times that Joseph is mentioned in the New Testament, in John chapter 4, remember for uh, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, beyond Abraham purchasing a plot of land for them to be buried on, and beyond Jacob purchasing the small piece of property for his flocks, there's not a whole lot that's actually owned by the um, patriarchs during their lifetime. But in John chapter 4 verse 5, This is right before Jesus and the woman at the well have their conversation. It says, So he, talking about Jesus, came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So this is probably another key component that's not mentioned in the narrative, but probably contributes to the animosity is that the land that we do own has been deeded over to our brother Joseph. Um, So he's got the coat, he's got the character. He's got the mother, he's got the land. All of these things are just fuel upon fuel upon fuel on the fire that gets them angry and hating their brother. The main point of this section, though, is that Jacob's preferential treatment of Joseph divides the family. So whichever detail is, is maybe more responsible than the others for why they hate him, the idea here is that Jacob's preferential treatment of Joseph divides the family. Not to say that it was inappropriate for Joseph to come to power or to be given authority, um, but the text alludes to the fact that this was done inappropriately in the fact that the same type of love and care was not being given to the other brothers. So irregardless of the coat, the fact that he was not loving his other sons the way that he was supposed to, in the same way that we've seen he wasn't loving his other wives the way that he was supposed to, it leads to division within the family. And, and this is certainly important for us as parents too, not that we would ever verbally say, hey, I prefer this child over the other, and um, not that we would really even be conscious of it potentially, but to be very careful in how we handle our kids, and each kid is different, and each kid is unique, and each kid has different personalities. Lauren and I have talked before about Jacob, or not Jacob, AJ and Abram, and just them responding differently to our discipline and how we have to handle some of that differently. But we have to be very guarded and careful that we certainly don't show preferential treatment and create more animosity than already exists between kids who are growing up in the same household. There's already enough flesh and enough sinfulness and enough jealousy and envy without us contributing to it. And so as parents, we have to be very guarded that we don't contribute to the problem as Jacob seems to do here. The implication for us is that we should not allow the success of others to negatively affect how we view them. So previously, we shouldn't allow the lack of failure, the fact that these individuals aren't dropping the ball, whereas we are. We shouldn't negatively uh, view people um, that are doing the right thing just because we're doing the wrong thing. And then here, we shouldn't negatively view other people who are experiencing success. And that's certainly what Joseph is experiencing here with his dad, and it causes animosity from the brothers. Again, going back to Genesis 37, 4, they hated him because of this. And it even describes their inability to communicate with him. It says they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So you already have this brewing. And then in a, in a most holy way, and I want to make sure that we stress this, in a most holy way, God steps in and I think adds the additional fuel that progresses this to where it ends up them wanting to get rid of him completely, right? God doesn't lead them into sin, God doesn't tempt them, but God certainly allows these dreams, these dreams that kind of push the brothers over the edge to come into play here. God gives these dreams to Joseph. All indications are is that the dreams in, in this whole story are given by God, and he's given the ability to understand and interpret these dreams. These dreams certainly come true, so we would hope that, that these dreams are divinely ordained and not simply a result of what he ate the night before, right? So, so God knows that, that trouble is brewing. God knows that the brothers hate Joseph. And God doesn't prevent that hatred from continuing, right? In the same way, in mysterious ways where we know he hardens Pharaoh's heart even further after he's hardened his own heart, these brothers have given themselves over to hatred and animosity and envy and God simply allows them to continue down that path by giving these dreams, okay? So number three, God's dreams for our kids to kind of summarize what we're about to talk about. Joseph's brothers get jealous of Joseph's dreams. And I need you to correct Joseph because I think in your notes for the kids, I accidentally put Jacob's brothers and it's Joseph's brothers. That's why I underlined that one too. So it's Joseph's brothers get jealous of Joseph's dreams. God allows fuel to be added to the sibling rivalry. What we just said, that that God does not uh, prevent the anger and the animosity and the bitterness from continuing. God continues to move forward with his plans to save Israel. He brings true dreams to Joseph. Um, We could potentially debate as to whether Joseph should have mentioned the dreams or not. Again, the text doesn't explicitly say one way or another as to whether he did anything wrong here. But it says, now Joseph had a dream, And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. I think that's the important part of this text, that that Moses right up front tells us that the dreams caused them to hate him even more. He said to them, "'Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose, stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, "'Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us?' So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. The indication here is that everybody knows what this dream means. Um, The intensity of the hatred escalates based on what the dream means. Uh, and, And I would go even so far as to say that they must think that the dreams could actually be true to hate him this much. I mean, if you think this is just your younger brother spouting off about a dream that he had the night before, it'd be very easy to just say, Stop talking. Like, who why why would you even think that this is going to be possible? I'm never bowing down to you. And there may have been an argument that would have ensued, but eventually you're going to say this is this is pointless, like that's never going to happen. The fact that they take this to the next level and it escalates and again, even that comment that they're going to make as they sell him away, now let's see what come of your dreams. There's probably an element here where they think this might be true. Like we know that our dad has had interactions with God, and we know our dad has had visions from god and and he's he's conveyed to us that those visions and dreams came true and he's and he and he tells us all the time that we need to believe God's promises and and he's he's seen those promises from God, and so they would have been potentially very in tune with the idea that God could communicate through dreams, right like today we know that God primarily communicates through his word, not to say that God never communicates through dreams anymore. I think any time that he does, it's simply to push individuals um, towards somebody who can reveal truth through God's word. So you hear accounts of somebody in, in a Muslim country who, who has a dream about God saying, hey, um, Islam's not right, Like you need to get things worked out with Christianity. I mean, that's just a broad summary of, of some of the stories that you might hear. I'm not gonna say that that never happens because I know it happened in the New Testament, right? With Cornelius and Peter and how God said, hey, Cornelius doesn't have all the information. Y'all need to go talk. And, and yet there was still the mandate that it had to come from a human being. I was talking to our middle schoolers this week. God doesn't communicate the gospel through angels. He communicates it through human beings. He has used angels. He has used dreams at times to point people in the right direction of the people to talk to. Um, but primarily God uses his word today. And, and so, you know, not to say that God never does communicate through dreams, but in this case, there's a likelihood that they would have expected it because of their dad saying, hey, this, is, this has happened to me frequently. Like, I've heard from God through this manner. So it's very possible that they're thinking, this might be true. Like, as much as we hate this, this, this there's, there's a possibility that if we don't do something, this is going to happen. Um, and so they step in and their hatred and their bitterness, and it only fuels it because now it's this could legitimately be something that we deal with the rest of our life. This brother of ours who thinks he's better than us, who our dad thinks is better than us, may actually be in a position where he's better than us. And so God allows the fuel to be added to the sibling rivalry. Um, and then the pairing of the dreams kind of adds to the certainty of the fulfillment. So even if they were thinking, maybe this is going to happen, maybe it's just a dream, it says in verse 9, then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. So the first dream, you've got like hay bales, basically, that are bowing down to his hay bale. And then in the second account, you've got the moon and the stars and the sun bowing down to him as well. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. All right? And so, so to me, that indicates they're not they're not annoyed with him, right? Like... I would be annoyed potentially if my sister had tried to communicate a dream to me that one day I was gonna bow down to her and serve her. Like I might would have, the text may would have said to me and Adam was annoyed with his sister. But here the idea is that they're jealous of him, which again seems to tie it more to they want the dreams to be about them and not about him. Like they're not just dismissing this as a younger brother spouting off about his his nightly thoughts. This is more... Hey, like, I don't want this to happen. In fact, I want the opposite to be true. Like, I wish I was getting those dreams. I wish I was the one that was the favored son. So there's a jealousy that's really driving their actions here. They don't want to see this to happen, they want instead for it to happen to them. And Joseph ties the, the two dreams aspect uh, as being important in Genesis 41 32. Remember, Pharaoh has two similar dreams about the famine, about the cows and the eating of the cows. And Joseph says in Genesis 41, the fact that you've had two dreams that are very similar with the same message adds certainty to the fact that this is going to happen. So here, I think the reason that we have the two dreams is to again, show the certainty that this is God behind this, that this isn't an accident that he ends up at Potiphar's house and ends up being ruler over Egypt. This is important information that Moses includes because he wants us to see this isn't because Joseph did a really good job and worked hard and worked his way up. This is God prophesying that this is going to happen and then it eventually happening. All right, the implication for us, we should not allow the authority of others to negatively affect how we view them. Again, this is where you've got the, um, the breath. The brother's jealous over what is happening and wanting to be in that position, Um, being jealous over the things that are happening to Joseph. So we as believers have to be careful that we don't allow the lack of failure in others to cause us to view them negatively, the successes of others, and then potentially the authority that others gain to negatively affect how we view them. And this can, this can play itself out in a lot of different ways. not it doesn't just have to be for kids, right? like certainly, as kids, I see this happen i've already told you about how you know the goody two shoes kids are the ones that get the negative rapport, and we try to fight against that at the school. We try to really go above and beyond to honor kids that are making good choices and decisions, and we try to spread that out so we want to to kind of silence the voice of those kids that are saying, "Hey, you know you guys are." You guys aren't having any fun like the rest of us and you guys are just sucking up to the teacher like we try to we try to avoid that mentality we try to fight against that by highlighting good behavior we take all the kids in our school that don't get a demerit to the braves game and get them out of school and, and a lot of times it's like uh close to 200 kids you know we only have like 300 and so we want what we want is to have a visual representation that you're not the minority Right? Because it feels like you're the minority when you're sitting in class and everybody else is talking and the teacher's like, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, and you feel like you're the only kid not talking. So we try to fight against that so that the kids that are making the right decisions feel like they're the majority because they are most of the time. I see kids constantly uh, belittling and attacking kids that are experiencing successes, whether that's on the athletic field um, wanting to minimize the success or, or try to deter the success because I'm not in the limelight right now. This happens as well. And this can certainly happen um, as adults. You know, like recently, uh, you know, this year, we, um, we ended up setting up department heads. And so we have teachers that teach Bible and history and science and English, and we ended up distinguishing one teacher out of each department as kind of the leader of that department. And so that's a temptation, For somebody to say okay why is that person chosen and not me and I I would have been a better choice for that position than that person so this is this is possible for us even as adults there's situations that can come about where somebody's putting authority over us this can happen within our church right like people that become deacons versus people that aren't deacons yet this is this is a breeding ground potentially for us to handle it inappropriately in the way that Joseph's brothers did hey, we're not okay with that. We want this to be happening to us and not that person. And th- that, that person becomes the point of attack versus the person that's really responsible here. Um, and that's where we kind of go into the application. The application is to identify the true nature of the sin and to deal with it, meaning that discontentment that leads to hatred towards others is really dissatisfaction with God, right? Like Joseph's not responsible for how his dad is treating him. We don't have any indication here that the brothers are mad at the dad. And that's really who they should have been mad at. If they want to be mad and they want to be angry and they want to be bitter, it really should have been directed towards dad. And then even further so, it really should be directed towards God because they're essentially saying we're discontent with how God is ordering things and how God is working things. I'm discontent with the fact that Joseph's getting the dreams and not me. And that Joseph's going to potentially be the son that's elevated higher than the rest of us. So... If, if these type of feelings exist for you towards anybody in your life, it's important that you identify the true nature of the sin and deal with it. And that's a dissatisfaction with God and his ordering of events in your life. That the person who is the, the recipient of your hatred and bitterness potentially is not the one who it really should be directed towards. Now we would all blush at the idea of saying, well, I'm bitter and angry and frustrated at God. But essentially that's really what it is. And we're just, we're just deferring that to somebody else. Um, but these brothers really need to take this up with the one who is orchestrating in these events and not Joseph. The second point of application is that we need to recognize that this sinful mindset is not consistent with salvation. Jealousy and envy, hatred and bitterness, it's not consistent with our salvation. A couple of passages I want to leave you with today. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, just the dangers of allowing this type of mindset towards and this flows right in with what we've been talking about with reconciliation. Um, in Hebrews chapter twelve, verse fifteen, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled the fact that we need to deal with the bitterness instead of letting it grow and produce more fruit. In James chapter 3, verse 16, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Okay, So where we allow jealousy and, and selfish ambition and a desire to be better than others, where we allow that to exist and where we allow that to live, James tells us there will be disorder in our life and every other vile practice has an entrance into our life. So we need to be very guarded as, we've, as we continue. And just because we had application Sunday next week, does, last week doesn't mean we're done with the concept of reconciliation. That needs to be an ongoing mindset for us that we're working things out, working out differences with people in our life and, and letting them know when, when maybe they're completely oblivious to the fact that there's an issue. But certainly in this case, where we're allowing someone else and their successes and their lack of failures and their advancements to potentially cause bitterness in us towards them, that sin needs to be recognized. That This is ultimately a dissatisfaction with how God is ordaining our life. And then we need to be careful that we don't allow these things to sit there, that they do need to be reconciled, or else every other vile practice can enter into our life as well. A couple more passages, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31 Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, Um, inconsistent with our salvation, if we allow it to stay. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that type of mindset is something that would have been true of us prior to salvation. And then in First Peter chapter 2, verse 1, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn infants, long for this pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So these things here are shown to be hindrances to our growth in salvation and our growth in sanctification. 1 John chapter 2, verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. I I caution some of our kids when they're in my office and um, we're working through issues and trying to bring them to reconciliation. I talk about passages like this that, hey, to continue to hang on to this and to continue to, uh, to cling to this and to treasure this type of mindset, it's inconsistent with you saying that you're a Christian. And so you ought to be very concerned if this is something that you can't let go of because to be a Christian means to be able to let go of this stuff and to be forgiving, that we're to be known as forgivers. Um To hate your brother is to be still in darkness, according to first John, and then First John chapter three, verse fifteen, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. all right, um last thing is our application questions for our kids, so for our parents um number one, when is telling on others good, and when is it considered tattling? And then number two, when are some times I might be tempted to be jealous of others, and how can I respond instead? What were some of the thoughts behind number one um, in your discussion groups this morning, the difference between telling on somebody versus tattling? Because this is another issue that kids are trying to learn at the age that I'm seeing at middle school, because you have two extremes. You have the kids who want to tell everything, right? And, And they're just labeled tattletales and have a negative reputation, and then you see kids that pick up on that and then take it to the other extreme and won't tell anything. I mean, just have closed lips about stuff that really needs to be told. And this especially, once they get into high school, it's kind of worked itself out. I'm either going to be the tattletale or I'm going to be the one who doesn't say anything. Um, and I keep, it, I keep it closed in and it's stuff that maybe needs to come out. So what was the discussion like? Any differentiation between what it looks like to tell and it be appropriate versus what tattletelling? would encompass okay the intent of the heart behind the telling which can be a hard for a kid to even work through they see something and they know it's wrong and so the first inclination i think especially as they're growing up and when they're still in that stage of wanting to do the right thing maybe they haven't made the decision to be that closed uh that closed off person they want to do the right thing and so they see someone doing the wrong thing and the I think the natural Christian thing that they've been told to do is to tell. You know the thoughts on when it's good to tell and when it's considered tattling? Yeah, telling on others can certainly be a way that selfish ambition acts itself out. It's let me promote myself by telling you what somebody else is doing wrong and we certainly want to Squash that in ourselves. We certainly want to lead faithfully with our kids to where that's not the mindset. Any other thoughts on this? I mean, because this leads to animosity in, in this situation with Joseph and his brothers. One thing that I read when I was kind of thinking through it is that when it's appropriate, you're telling to get somebody out of trouble. And tattling is telling to get someone in trouble. Um, which I think is at least an, a good starting point in thinking between the two. One is I'm concerned about this person and and I don't want them to be in the trouble that they're in. So I'm coming to tell you, and I've seen both play itself out. When we gave email addresses to our kids at school, it became a wonderful way to tattle on everybody. So I get emails throughout the day. Hey, so-and-so is playing games on their Chromebook. And it's like, I don't care right now. Really? Like, don't be the guy that tells on everybody that you catch mismanaging their Chromebook, right? But then I've also had other kids that come in that want to talk about a kid that's in danger. They're they're, they're harming themselves, and they're real closed up about it. And I'm trying to get to, hey, I need details here. Well, I don't want to be a tattletale. No, no, this isn't what being a tattletale means, right? Like like your friend is in trouble, and, and you know they're in trouble, and you're you know something's not right, and that's why we're even talking about this but I need you to to feel free to tell me what's going on here. You're not not trying to get them in trouble. You're not trying to promote yourself, right? And our kids need to know the difference. Um, And so uh, I'd encourage our parents that have kids to kind of think through um, these two questions and to try to shepherd. And something we're gonna start doing as an add-on to our Sunday mornings is that Adam McLeod is going to start posting uh, suggestions for how to use what we've done here on Sunday and the notes that we've given to our kids how to do this at home at some point during the week, whether it's one time over the next seven days, whether it's multiple days and kind of spreading it out. He's going to give you some suggestions of things that he's doing in his household with his kids, how he's trying to shepherd his kids through this material, how he's trying to reinforce what's been talked about. He's going to start posting that on the city. So I wanted to to kind of give you these application questions because I'm sure they'll kind of play into what he ends up doing this week. But to kind of give you a heads up, and it's meant to be very flexible, right? Like we're not gonna give you so much content where it's like, how am I supposed to build that into my busy family schedule? It's really meant to be so minimal that you're like hopefully getting to the point where it's like, I gotta start adding to this because this isn't enough. You know, Whether it's just sitting down with your kids and getting ready for bed and, and pulling some of this content out and allowing this to be the focal point of your conversations as you're, as you're praying and, and saying goodnight to your kids. So we're going to try to start giving that material again to help connect what we're doing on Sunday mornings with um, our kids and how they can take what we're talking about and apply that to their life um, as well. So for our adults that don't have kids, feel free to use that material as well because it's going to be uh, certainly helpful just as an individual, not just for kids. In the same way, these two questions would be helpful as well. Um, There's obviously times where we can be tempted to be jealous, and we need to anticipate those times so that we can fight against those natural tendencies to potentially be jealous in those situations. Okay, Um, let's pray together. So um, I want us to, as we're praying, and I'm going to lead us in in a time of prayer, I want us to be thinking through some of this stuff. I want us to be certainly um, ready to continue thinking through this as we leave um, because there may be people in your life that you need to, to fix things with in regards to this. Um, that maybe you've allowed bitterness and envy and jealousy to filtrate into your life, and it's caused you to treat other people differently or to view people differently or to even withdraw from people because of this attitude and mindset. So uh, I would encourage you as we lead today to be thinking about the possibility of that in your life um, and and what steps need to be taken to fix that and to fix that relationship potentially as well. Let's pray together. Lord, we do uh, praise you and thank you for The example of Joseph and all the great things that we're going to see about him and the good choices that he makes and the example of integrity and character that he is and his example of saying no uh, when sin would have been so very easy. Um, His example of wisdom and uh, planning for the future and uh, just his maturity and being able to see the events of his life being orchestrated by you for good purposes. A lot of great things about him. And we thank you for those things, and we certainly aspire to be like him. Um, God, we know that heroes are very much a part of our culture, and we're, we're prone to look up to people. And so we're thankful that we have people worth looking up to that you've drawn attention to in your word. Um, but God, we don't want to lose sight of the fact that you're ultimately uh, the main character of this, um, that you have been working all along from Genesis 3 to fix the sin problem. And that this story is just another step in that fixing process where you desired to raise up a nation that your son could come through. And so, Father, we we thank you for this story. We thank you that you orchestrated all the events of this story um, so that Joseph could be protected, so that his family could be protected, so that ultimately the nation of Israel could come out. And God, we praise you and thank you that Despite maybe not working big miracles, you certainly were at work in a very mighty way in all the details of this story. God, I pray that we would, in looking at this, see our own flaws and see our own proneness to sin, just like Joseph's brothers, as we are certainly ones that are not exempt from seeing other people around us who are making the right choices when we aren't and who are experiencing successes when we aren't and are potentially put in positions of authority that we desire. And God, if we're not careful, we know that our flesh will react to those things and will grow bitter and angry and envious and jealous, and it'll lead to broken relationships. And if we're not careful, it'll allow other sins to enter into our life that will cause us to be a stench to those around us. And so, God, I pray that you would guard and protect us from these mindsets. Help us to see that it doesn't have a place in in our salvation and that you've saved us from these mindsets and you've cleansed us from these mindsets and you've given us the power through your Holy Spirit to fight against these things. God, I pray that we'd be faithful to shepherd those underneath us well in these areas as, as well. God, I pray that we would help um, for those of us that have children, that have been entrusted with children, that we'd be able to shepherd our kids to see some of these things, to uh, to understand that they're not in the minority when they're making their right choices and decisions and they shouldn't allow The negativity that others may speak to them to deter them from making the right decisions. God, I pray that we would not, uh, that our kids would not um, fall prey to these mindsets that we've talked about today, that they would uh, understand when it's appropriate to tell, just as Joseph seemed to understand uh, when it was appropriate to tell his dad things that were going on. Um, God, I pray that you would allow our kids to grow up and to understand these concepts that will allow them to thrive as they continue to get older. Help those that that don't have kids but, but have been entrusted to work with our youth to be able to shepherd well in this area too. Um, and so, God, I pray that even as adults, we'd be able to apply the things that we've talked about today that we've seen from your word um, and that you would use these things to mold us and make us more and more into the image of Christ. Help us to continue to think through these things as we leave today, realizing that the brief time we've talked about them today is certainly probably not sufficient to fix any issues that really may be there. And so, God, I pray that you would continue to draw these things to our attention this week and that we'd be faithful to apply the word as you prompt us to. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.savhope.org. Again, that's www.savhope.org.